Welcome back to the Jacob Wall Show. Monday, January 9th here. Uh, we're a little bit early today, going at 1 p.m. A lot to do on the lobbying front. Wasn't possible to do the show on Thursday. Try as I might. Uh, I was running about a 100-degree fever, and between that and, and my voice being very weak, it just wasn't going to be possible to do a show. Uh, on top of what I was doing on Capitol Hill, uh, trying uh, here to, to figure out what's going on with the speaker's race uh, on Thursday, there wasn't going to be much to report, frankly. Uh, the, the story was moving so quickly. But what I'm going to do on today's episode is give you some insight into what was happening on Capitol Hill uh, when it comes to the race for McCarthy to become Speaker of the House, which he, of course, has now done in 15 votes. Late Friday night, I was outside the Capitol as that vote took place uh, with Laura Loomer and Jack Berkman. I'll give you some insight. Uh, had a chance to speak with a lot of members in the last week and even this morning and a lot of congressional staffers about what was happening, what sort of concessions may have been given in order to get the support of this uh, insurgent wing of the Republican Party. I think that's an appropriate term. I know Dan Crenshaw called them terrorists. Obviously, that's ridiculous, especially coming from somebody who uh, was formerly a Navy SEAL. Uh, but an insurgent wing of the party, that has long been a term that has been used. In fact, it was once used to describe Kevin McCarthy himself and the Tea Party Caucus. Before it was the Freedom Caucus, we all remember the Tea Party, and they were called an insurgent wing of the Republican Party, but quickly they took over. So I'm going to give you some insight there. We're going to, we're going to begin with the Speaker's race. Kevin McCarthy now, of course, Speaker of the House and I would just say, as we go into that story, the first thing that you have to recognize are what the possible choices were for Speaker of the House. Now, many of you don't realize, I think much of the public does not realize how these positions come to be. Why is somebody Speaker or uh, Majority Whip or Minority Leader, Minority Whip? How do these positions come about? How does somebody work their way up the ranks? How do people end up on certain committees in Congress, aside from their very own kind of merit and background? If they're lawyers, perhaps they might be likely to be on the Judiciary Committee. If they're not lawyers, perhaps they'd be a lot less likely. Of course, there's a lot of lawyers on Capitol Hill. But I'm going to tell you exactly how these situations work out. And the bottom line is that it comes down to, for the most part, Fundraising. Now, a piece of that can be can be seniority as well, but a major piece is fundraising. That's why members of the squad, for example, were able to get onto uh, very uh, serious committees right out of the gate. That's why they were on foreign affairs. That's why they were on House Oversight right out of the gate. Now, these committees are not the premier committees. They're not the most sought after committees. But they're much higher profile committees than many other committees, like, say, the Commerce Committee. Uh, and again, I'm, I'm going to do my best today here, despite uh, the last bit of this cold. I'm getting over 100 degree fever last week, but my voice is, uh, is still not 100 percent. I'm just going to do my best here. But the reason that, say, AOC was able to get onto those committees is because she was a hell of a fundraiser as soon as she won her first primary. And of course, then was a shoe in to win the race. Same thing with Ilhan Omar. She's a very good fundraiser from the radical left wing of the party. Uh, but zoom out away from the House and even look at Bernie Sanders. Now, Bernie Sanders 
uh, is on the Senate Appropriations Committee. Uh, in fact, he chairs the budget subcommittee of Senate Appropriations. And you figure Bernie Sanders, that's the guy who proposed we spend $39 trillion a year on health care, more dollars than even exist. He's the chair of the budget committee. How does that work out? Well, I will tell you, because Bernie Sanders is a very good fundraiser. And when you are a very good fundraiser, uh, meaning that Bernie Sanders can raise a lot of small do dollar donations through emails to uh, the Prius driving uh, wealthy elites in the party, as well as the young pajama boy kind of element of the Democrat Party. He's a hell of a fundraiser. And when you are as good of a fundraiser as Bernie Sanders, you have your pick of the litter when it comes to committees. And for any member, they want to be on the appropriations committees. You say, why, why would Bernie Sanders even want to be on the appropriations committees? And by the way, we've got some construction going outside. I hope the noise gate on this mic, I've got a, a number of effects. I hope the noise gate is doing its job. I, I think it is. Uh, but I, I apologize if you're if you're picking up this uh, digging that's going on uh, construction-wise. But you figure, why would Bernie Sanders want that? Well, I'll tell you why. It's because for members of Congress, fundraising consumes a huge, huge portion of their time, especially especially for members of the House, because they have to run every two years. So they're fundraising full time. They're spending a great deal of time fundraising. And it is not just fundraising for their own races that they have to do. If they want to be, uh, you know, moving their way up within the party and getting onto these premier committees, what they have to do uh, is they have to raise money not only for their own campaign, but they have to raise money for the party. And so what they do, if you're a member of the House, is you schlep across the street to the Capitol Hill Club, to the NRCC headquarters, and you give you, you get a list of donors and you go down the list and you cold call that list of donors and you ask them to donate to either the NRCC or the RNC or any number of other PACs and to put in the memo line of the donation uh, for Matt Gates or for... Katie Hill or for, you know, former member Katie Hill or for whoever, whatever member of Congress it is. And then you get credited on a chart for raising that money. So you have members of Congress spending a couple of days a week really making cold calls, asking people for money. And within the donor class, I know a lot of these people as a lobbyist. I deal with them all the time. I raise a lot of uh, money for members of Congress myself. I, I help members of Congress with campaigns. That's part of being a lobbyist. But these people love getting a call from a congressman, and they're happy to send $2,000 to the NRCC. They've got a lot of disposable income. It's not a big deal. And when you do enough of that, eventually you get on to, let's say, House Appropriations. And when you get on to House Appropriations, the game changes for you a little bit. The same can be said for Ways and Means, because they really deal with the tax code. When you get into one of those two committees... Now you're in a different league because what will happen once you're on one of those two committees is that you no longer have to make cold calls all day long. Once you're on those committees, what will happen instead is that your staff will get called up by lobbyists and they'll say, we are hosting a fundraiser for, uh, for you, Congressman. We're hosting a fundraiser for you. All you've got to do, do is show up and take some selfies. And we're going to host a dinner at our home and uh, we're going to have 15 max donors there, meaning that what they're going to do is they're going to write you a uh, $2,700, $2,800 check, let's say these days, I guess, for your general 
If they're in a primary, then they'll write two of those, one for the primary, one for the general. And uh, they're all going to do the max donation. Uh, and then sometimes they'll say, plus they're going to do 2000 each to the NRCC on your behalf. And now you didn't have to do a bunch of cold calling. You didn't have to call 100 people to get four donations or 10 donations or something. Now, uh, instead, all you have to do is, after work hours, uh, drive over to some house in the Northern Virginia area and D.C. and Maryland uh, and show up and take some pictures and leave. And you can do three of those in a night. But those kind of fundraisers for you are not going to happen until you are on the Appropriations Committee or until you're on uh, the House Ways and Means Committee or, or, or the equivalents in the Senate side. Uh Financial services is a decent one as well. Banking are a decent one because they deal with regulation. And so as a lobbyist that deals in regulation, you need those members. That's another area that you can you can deal with. And so these are the premier committees and you want to get onto these committees so that you can uh, essentially, uh, you know, you can you can not have to do all of the pain in the butt work of raising money. Now, as time goes on, there are a few people that stick out among fundraisers that are really good at raising money. I mean, and not just for their own races and not just for congressional races, but they're good at raising money for the party overall. Uh, They're good at raising money in presidential races. They're good on TV. And these people are the ones who stand a chance of perhaps uh, making it into leadership. Now, they don't have to have all of those features necessarily. I mean, we've certainly had speakers of the House. We've had uh, certainly whips that were not major TV talents. I mean, Steny Hoyer's not a major TV talent. At least he hasn't been in 20 years. Saw him last week. He looks about 90. I think he's 83 or something. And man, he, he looked like a walking corpse. By the way, you want, you wonder why these people live so long. It's because they have to walk so much between different congressional offices and things. These people probably all walk three, four miles a day at least. And so you wonder why they live so long. That's a big part of it, I think. Uh, they have long life expectancies, and that's one of the reasons. Now, Okay, talking about, uh, you know, that and, and, and who can be speaker. One of the things you realize is that the, the quality of the individual in terms of the people that are going to Congress in the last 30 years, say, has gone way down. There are very few people anymore uh, that can even wear the suit. They can even wear the suit. So, uh, you know, do the, can they look good in a suit? Are they morbidly obese? Um, do they have a really heavy duty, let's say Southern accent or really heavy duty Rhode Island accent or some really strong parochial accent, like a New York accent. That was always the problem with Andrew Cuomo in the national scene. He had a very strong, heavy duty parochial New York accent, which by the way, his younger brother managed to get rid of because he pursued a career in television. And that doesn't work in television. You have to have uh, what is known as sort of a generic American accent, Um, the kind of accent that people from, say, a wealthy suburb of Columbus, Ohio might have, or perhaps a a wealthy part of Orange County, California might have. It's, It's not a value. It's not a value statement about accents. It's just this is what is expected in those roles. The quality of the person has gone way down over the years. I mean, you look at Nancy Mace. She showed up to her first day of Congress dressed up in what was a a leather kind of outfit, nipples protruding, no bra, 
I mean, did you see this outfit she was wearing? I'm not even going to show it here on YouTube, but I mean, I showed it on my Telegram. If you haven't seen Telegram, t.me slash Jacob A. Wool. I mean, what was she thinking? She looked like she was going to some kind of uh, bondage party or something. Black leather and just, I mean, and then she showed up the next day. And in fact, I saw her this time in person walking in. I took a little video. I was with Laura Loomer. I took a little video and, and posted it. And this time she's wearing an extremely short skirt. This outfit made clear that, I mean, she needs to either pursue some shapewear or even better, just lose some weight because she's got a, she's got a big kind of a pot belly, even though she's dressed up like this very short skirt or short dress. And she's walking this little like Pomeranian or toy poodle. I think it was a Pomeranian. I, I wouldn't even pay too close attention. She's walking the dog into the Capitol. I mean, she's a freshman congressperson. She's walking this little dog. She's, I mean, she's trying to look like she's Lindsay Lohan or something or, or, or Paris Hilton walking in, you know, big sunglasses. It's like, what, drinking a Starbucks. What are you doing? What are you trying to prove? So strange. So over the top. This is a Republican. First female graduate from the Citadel. I know a lot of Citadel grads. And they told me stories of, you know, tapes they had seen of her doing lesbian sex acts to impress men or boys, I guess, you know, in, in college. So the bottom line is that the, the quality of the person that goes to Congress has gone way down. Uh, it is not really something that people are very often doing because they want to serve any longer. It is really not. I mean, I think one of the things you should look for in a congressperson is how rich are they? How rich are they? And we say rich. I mean, they don't even have to be rich, but how well do they do? They don't have to be uber wealthy, but how well do they do? You should want Congress people where for them to go to Congress is a material downgrade in every way. Like if I ran for Congress and I won doing the job of a congressman for me in terms of just every measurable lifestyle metric, it would be a downgrade. The hours I'd work, not so much in terms of the numbers of hours, but in terms of um, just the times of night and they do all these late night votes and all this stuff, that would go down. Um, my office would be inferior. Um, I, 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 Of course, you don't really get a driver or anything as a freshman congressman, but even if I did, I don't need a driver. I mean, you know, whatever. I mean... I can I can pay for an Uber Black XL if I want one or or whatever they're called these days or Lyft. I, I think I'm banned from Uber still uh, for no reason. I can pay for that. I mean, it would be a it would be a massive pay cut for me. It would be a it would be a massive pay cut. There would be, you know, uh, it would just be a downgrade in every way. So the only conceivable reason I would do it would be because I felt a call to service. Now, that is not the case for most people that you see in Congress. Uh, most of these people that you see in Congress uh, that run for the House, and, and even the same can be said in the Senate, every part of their life being a congressman, and not just the prestige and not just the title, none of that, every part of it for them is, is an upgrade. They would never have an office as nice as the office that they have in the Longworth building or the Rayburn building or what have you. They would never have a driver. They would never have anyone pay for their flights. Who would want to pay for their flights? They would never have staff. What do they need staff for? They're a you know, flunky personal injury lawyer from someplace or you know, a lame you know, former 
DA or something from some location around the country. Their pay is maybe double or triple what they would have made in the private sector. Their access to uh, power and high-end people is double or triple. All of a sudden, maybe they couldn't, they weren't very good with women before, but now that they're a congressman, they're trying to score with chicks or the other way around. And that happens too with female congressmen or, you know, closeted gay or openly gay congressmen scoring with dudes. So for many of these people, going to Congress is a huge, huge, huge lifestyle upgrade. And that's not to mention all of the indirect compensation, all of the insider trading that goes on, all of the schemes that go on where, you know, the, let's say Ro Khanna, who's a congressman from Silicon Valley, Democrat, and they look at his finances and his uh, four-year-old daughter, four years old, has done over 10,000 options trades in the last two and a half years you know, in a trust account administered by, you know, the mother, but it's, it's in her name. I mean, I was into financial markets at a young age, but not that young. And I traded some options before I turned 18, let's say, but not that many and not that young and not at that kind of profit. I will tell you that. And they make tremendous profits, but even discounting all of those schemes, just talking about the basic salary, the basic perks of the job and all of that these are people that are getting a huge upgrade. So half the thing is, can the person even wear the suit? You know, people were talking about Jim Jordan should be speaker. Well, first of all, people have been confused about why I'm no fan of Jim Jordan. I'll tell you why. Because Jim Jordan has been signaling for years that he's doing something about big tech. And he never does anything about big tech. Never. In fact, big tech are his biggest donors. Google raises tons of money for Jim Jordan. And so he is basically the controlled opposition for big tech. And in my view, being controlled opposition is even worse than being a stooge because it's just, it's, it's, it's twice as disingenuous if you really break it down. So that's Jim Jordan. And so he claims, oh, we're looking into big tech censorship, blah, blah, blah. Just vote for me one more time. We're going to get it done. Never does. And then he says, oh, the Twitter files. Well, well, wait a second, Jim Jordan. If you were actually investigating big tech, then why didn't your congressional subpoenas turn up all these Twitter files? Oh, that's right. I know because you didn't send any out. You didn't issue any congressional subpoenas at all. So Jim Jordan's a hack. But, but even if he weren't a hack on that issue, even if he weren't, the guy never wears a suit jacket. Look up Jim Jordan. He never wears a suit. I don't know why. Maybe he has a body temperature issue where he sweats a lot. He is very sweaty all the time. And I'm not knocking. I mean, I'm not knocking for that. I think they make drugs for that now, but I'm not, I'm not knocking him for it. But a lot of these people, that's because of heavy duty drug use. I will tell you. I don't know what the issue is with him, but, but obviously he's not speaker material. And you go right down the list and you say, well, who would you like your speaker to be? Well, Steve Scalise. Well, come on. Look at Steve Scalise. That's not your speaker. Look at Steve Scalise in his best photo. Look at Kevin McCarthy in his best photo. Yes, those things matter. The accent, the look, all of that. And by the way, being from California helps because California, you think California, that's not Republican. Well, California has got more registered Republicans as of last time I checked than every other state in the union. And it's not even close. 
There's a lot of Republicans in California. So if you're in California, if you're the California guy, you can raise a lot of money from those people. You can mobilize them. California is one, and this is going to be hard for you to believe, but California is one of the centers of Republican politics in this country. And I've seen it from the time I grew up. I grew up in a Republican district in California, one or another, my entire childhood. A lot of California's Republican. The way the state's gerrymandered, the way that the population centers work out, of course, it goes blue. It, it went blue in my lifetime. When I was a, a, a young man, a, a child, Arnold Schwarzenegger was our governor. When I was a small child, Gray Davis was the governor. He was a Republican. So I've watched it happen. The point is, that's a good thing for a speaker to have, is to be from a place like that. Lo and behold, you have Pelosi, for, for example. Applies for Democrats as well. So that's an important uh, standpoint. Now, if McCarthy was not going to make it at any point, they would have gone for a compromise candidate, and the most likely compromise candidate would have been not Steve Scalise, but it would have been Jim Banks. Now, Jim Banks, most of you probably can't summon his face off the top of your head, and I don't blame you. He's a low-profile kind of a guy. He's kind of a semi-edgy establishment guy, okay? That's, that's the bottom line with Jim Banks. But McCarthy did pull it off, 15 votes. The Republicans got some concessions. What were those concessions? As near as anyone can tell, we don't really know. I mean, they got this uh, rule that, you know, supposedly they can remove McCarthy with the, you know, drop of a hat. That's not going to happen. Okay, McCarthy would not give them that if he thought that were going to happen. So McCarthy's a speaker. Whatever McCarthy's going to do that's going to be very bad in terms of where we sit ideologically is going to happen very, very soon. He's not going to do an immigration blowout amnesty deal, let's say, um, this time next year because he'll be back into an election year. It'll hurt him. It'll hurt not just him. He's not worried. I mean, his district's basically rigged. It'll hurt. I mean, he could lose. You could have a you could have a a um, situation like you had with Eric Cantor, but it's more so just the Republican ticket overall. Now, so whatever's going to happen is going to be very bad. He's going to do it soon. I wouldn't worry too much about Ukraine funding and stuff, everyone. I mean, you know, the the the, the Ukrainian flag thing is as insulting to me as it is to all of you. I'm sure. I think it's important for people to keep in mind. I mean, I've worked on some of these Ukraine things even recently, even last night. I was working on a Ukraine policy uh, item for an upcoming uh, appropriation that's coming up and uh, for a client on on the lobbying side. And what I will tell you is that, you know, you see these numbers like 45 billion and you have to take them with a grain of salt. For example, There has been a policy that has been in place up until very recently that we are not going to send anything to Ukraine that is sensitive military technology that could fall into the hands of the Russians and and create a situation where they could clone it. Now, part of that concern is a little bit fallacious in my view because you say, well, okay, let's say that The Ukrainians want Generation 3 night vision. Very expensive. Well, it'd be useful to them, let's say, uh, but we don't want the Russians to clone it. The Russians make some night vision. It's just not it's just not anywhere near as good. It's really not. I mean, I've I've tested him out myself personally. Okay, it's just not anywhere near as good. Their IR designators are okay. The pursed lasers and all of that. But 
do you think they really can't just have somebody in the U.S. order a set from OpticsPlanet.com or TNVC and then somehow make it, you know, make it end up in Russia or just examine it here and take it reverse engineer it here? Of course they can't. So I think that concern's a little bit off, but nonetheless, that is the concern. And as the technology gets more and more esoteric, like certain kinds of guided missiles and things like this, they're even more worried about it. So every bit of technology that's been sent over to Ukraine, for the most part, has been pre-1980 technology. And it was it was equipment, in most cases, that is either just non-sensitive in any way, shape, or form, or, and or, I should say, was slated to be destroyed. So there was a lot of old stock Stinger missiles that are literally, they, they have an expiration date, a lot of these things. So like this, the Stinger missile system, for example, uh, has a, a unit that has to go on it before use that is that has argon to cool it. Um, the, the way that the battery and the electronics work, it's so old that it really heats up. And so, uh, especially because it was anticipated that it may be used in certain climates or it may be used at high elevation, which can also cause it to heat up, it has this big argon cooling unit that, that comes with it. Um, the the uh, Javelin also has something like that. It's not quite as, you know, old school, but uh, the Javelin is actually a pretty old system if you go back to its earliest development. So the point is, these were old stock. They literally have expiration dates in some cases, and they were going to have to be destroyed. It was actually going to be, in many cases, more expensive to destroy them than it was going to be to uh, to, to to send them over to Ukraine. There were instances with body armor, not quite as old as 1980, but say there were some, some body armor that, that was in the stock from, say, 2000, 2001, 2002, Again, this is not something that's all that proprietary. It's not that sensitive. But the body armor actually has an expiration date because if it's not stored properly in the right temperatures and things like this, ceramic body armor can decompose. Now, it can be recertified. You can send it back to NIJ or one of the firms that that does this and you can have it recertified, but it's cheaper just to get new stuff. So they were going to have to throw that out. Well, they sent it to the Ukrainians. It's probably going to work fine. It's probably not decomposed or anything. All kinds of instances like this. I don't want to belabor this point. All kinds of examples I can give you. So when you see $40 billion, it's not exactly $40 billion. Now, the notable exception to this is the Patriot Missile Defense System. Now, we've sent the Patriot Missile Defense System already to Saudi Arabia. We've sent it to a number of other countries, dozens of countries, in fact, uh, including Slovakia. This is a theater-level system. It's not a system that you would really want to use to say shoot down a $25,000 Iranian drone, given that each missile, each launch costs about $4 million. You'd be spending $4 million to shoot down a $25,000 drone. Uh, But there's there's a thought that you can, you know, basically make these things big targets and absorb a lot of incoming Russian uh, hardware. And there's a whole theory behind this that we don't have time to get into on today's show. But that's going to take time. They're not even going to start training the Ukrainians on this technology in Slovakia until about April. Okay. Then in about May, they're going to actually roll the things into Ukraine. So there's so much detail here. There's so much minutia. And I don't blame people for not understanding all of it. 
And part of the reason I don't blame people is because it's not as though the other side is pointing this out either, because you see the, the other side, the side that wants to seem super pro-Ukrainian, they don't want to downplay the support that they're giving. They want to upplay it. So you got one side who's playing up the actual level of support because they want it to sound like they're giving a ton of support. You have the other side who wants to upplay it because they believe in isolationist politics and they say 45 billion to Ukraine while we have homeless people in this country as though the homeless situation can just be fixed with money. It can't. And so both sides are really uh, being very selective on this issue about what they're looking at, how they're tabulating the spending. And as a result, you have uh, policy now and, and, and commentary for the most part that is derived from misunderstandings about what's really going on. That's unfortunate. I mean, not at the highest levels, not on the Armed Services Committee, not on the Foreign Affairs Committee, not at the Speaker of the House level, at the Gang of Eight level. These people get intel briefings. They understand what's actually going on. They understand all of this. They don't say it. But I mean, like candidates, you know, and, and people out there and, and commentators and all of that. These people believe something about what's going on in Ukraine that that's just it's just not true. So anyway, I'm, I'm happy to understand all of this. Um, and. Um, I, I'm 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 happy that I could explain some of it to you. Um, here we go. So I, I was this person comments in the chat here. I was in air defense artillery in a manpad unit stinger. They pretty much did away with these units after I got out. Yeah, there there was not a lot of use for stingers. They pretty much did away with. There's a very limited use even of the javelins uh, in the global war on terror. Some use in Iraq, some use in Afghanistan, uh, but not a lot. Not a lot at all. Not used much at all. Stinger is 1970s technology. They make, Raytheon actually makes an upgraded version of the Stinger. They do. Um, but they, I don't know that they've actually ever produced one. Meaning to say that it's in their catalog. They have demo units. I've actually held the demo unit. Raytheon used to be right down the street from where I lived. I mean, like one block away. I could look out my window, see the building. But, um, uh, I, I, I've, I've messed around with it, but I don't know that they've actually produced them at all in mass. The Stinger 2.0, meaning it doesn't have like the argon cooling pack and it's not got tubes in it and, you know, all of this 1970s tech. Uh, but um, uh, nonetheless, it, it, it's it's something where I'll, I'll continue to try to elucidate the truth here. Uh, you know, part of it is, and as we look at like Ali Alexander being unbanned from Twitter, restored just this morning and and hopefully I am soon I I, I really hope so I hope it happens soon I'm ready I, I need to push predator DC out there but when I talk about commentary like this this sort of and I'm going to use the word I rarely use it nuanced uh, commentary on the topic and analysis of what's really happening I hope there's a market for this left on Twitter when I'm back. I don't know if there is. I know there's a huge market of people that want to just, you know, retweet and like, you know, Zelensky's a thug. We're sending 45 billion cash. Blah, 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 blah. I, I know there's a market for that. And I know there's a market for, you know, yellow and blue flag in the bio. No amount of money is too much. Send all the money. I know there's a market for either of those extremes. I, I wonder how much of a market there is for the, for the truth. I wonder. 
but we we shall see. I mean, the, the, as I often say, and I gave this free tweet to Laura Loomer to send out, I, I said, the reality is that the American public, when you talk about the American electorate, they want to be told lies. They don't want to be told that Mexico is better for mid-level, unskilled labor, manufacturing labor, let's say, than the United States. They don't want to be told that. That what they want to be told is that Trump's going to bring their jobs back through tariffs and the lug nuts are going to be screwed into the wheels in Detroit like they used to be and not in Juarez. But that's not true. They want to be told that nonetheless. They don't want to be told the truth that you can't close a gap between $80 an hour and $8 an hour with tariffs. They don't want to be told that. That's one example. There's many examples. And so if you have among the American electorate an appetite for dishonesty, what's the result? Well, you're going to have a bunch of people who are willing to serve that out, run for office, and the most talented liars will be sent to Washington, D.C., as congressmen, as senators, as presidents. The most convincing liars will be sent to D.C. So it is It is a, a reality. And I mean, there, there's a lot more market, say, for this kind of analysis within the financial world. Because the market's right. And and I mean, if, if you're wrong, if you if you don't agree with the market, well, you can you can afford to disagree with the market for some time, but eventually your view of what the market should do has 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 got to go your way or you'll go broke. And so among, you know, say sophisticated market participants, global macro analysts, the appetite for the truth seems to be very high. Among the general purpose American political information consumer, political media junkie, it seems to be very low increasingly low these days, increasingly low. So it's curious. Uh, this guy says, uh, what a username in the chat says, this is why I'm a fan of George Santos. Yeah. Half of these people's stories are totally confabulated. They really are. Yeah. There's really not a lot of truthful talk or intelligent discussion on Twitter. It exists within the financial world. I think more than it does in the political realm. Um, but I, I, I'm just, I, you know, look, there's any number of other personalities, any number of other shows out there that you can watch if you want to see bloviating, if you want to see that. You know, you can you can go any number of other places. It's not really fun for me. I, I, I'm not interested in faking it. I can fake it. I can fake it if you'd like, but I, I'm not going to. Uh, if I'd like, I can fake it, but I, I'm not going to. Okay, talking about Brazil here. I mean, this is a story that's developing quickly. Let me get to that one in a second here. Uh, what's going on in Brazil? Hard to say. Uh, they, they've they basically raided their equivalent of the Capitol building there. Protesters have. I'm not sure if they're still in the building. Bolsonaro, meanwhile, lives now in Orlando. In the last hour or so, he's been reported hospitalized with gastrointestinal pain. There was word that some senior law enforcement officials in the new Brazilian regime had, had flown into Orlando were they there to like apprehend Bolsonaro? Are they coordinating an arrest of Bolsonaro with the FBI on corruption charges? Uh, I think they've unsealed some corruption charges against him already in uh, Rio de Janeiro. And now they're uh, seeking to bring him back. But are they going to? 
Is the hospital thing real? It's just too early to say. I don't know. I could guess. I don't know. Uh, but there is this uproar in Brazil, protesters storming in. I will not condemn the protesters. If you'd like me to condemn these protesters storming in, in support of a capitalist leader, I will not do that. If we had any sense of right and wrong in this country, the American government would be supporting these protesters against the communist government there, as we used to. We used to stand up for capitalism and stand against communism south of our border. We no longer do that. And it's been a huge problem. I told you it's going to be one of the themes, one of the recurring themes of this year. And that is why we opened the very first show of the year. The very first segment was about what's going on south of the border, because I, I'm telling you it's going to be a recurring theme over the next year and even more than uh, the next year, even longer than that. So the, the reality is a quickly developing story. We don't exactly know. Of course, Biden and world governments the world over have have condemned this protest and all the rest. Uh, I don't. I'm not here to condemn it. I don't know a lot of the finer details, but we shall see. Uh, we shall see. So, all right, let's see here. Uh, moving moving ahead, I'm going to keep covering this, but it's just there's there's not a lot to report now. It's just very conflicting accounts. I'm not sure what more to say about it. We're all following it together. Uh, there is a story in the Wall Street Journal that I happened to see last night. Rick Singer and other notable figures who were sentenced in the Varsity Blues scandal. So Rick Singer was the sort of ringleader. If you don't remember, this was the pay-for-play college admission scandal where you had kind of coaches putting people on teams. Even if the kids never played the sport in their life, they would Photoshop pictures of their faces onto, say, a rowing team or something. And it was to get the children uh, who were not qualified to go to these universities, but they happened to be the children of rich people or of celebrities to get them uh, into these elite colleges. And it stretched from USC to Yale and everywhere in between. And there was this gentleman, Rick Singer, who, who was at essentially the head of this. He was sentenced on Friday to three and a half years in prison. Uh, that marks the end of a, of a four-year legal drama for him. Uh, he pleaded guilty to all of this all the way back in 2019, apparently cooperated. And so, you know, pending the end of his cooperation, was not yet sentenced. Now he was just sentenced to three and a half years in prison for coordinating the payments, the bribes, and all of this. Uh, I will tell you, I, I, I know a lawyer who worked at a high level as a defense attorney for one of the people in this case. I can't say who, of course, but the lawyer was laying out for me kind of how this all went down and the resources that were spent on this Varsity Blues investigation, the federal resources. This was headed up out of the Boston field office of the FBI. They had 50 FBI special agents working on this for over three years using wiretaps. Yes, using wiretaps, using uh, Title III wiretaps, using surveillance, using uh, you name it, countless search warrants and subpoenas, all of that. In order to do this, and uh, it was headed up out of Boston, of course, because Boston's really the epicenter of elite universities in the country. And, of course, eventually they arrest these, these celebrities, and it was a big kind of PR dragnet uh, situation for the FBI and the Department of Justice. Some people pleaded quickly. They got as little as nine months. Uh, 
uh, six months, I think in some cases, home confinement. I mean, some of the celebrities got off very easy in all of this, at least in, I only say got off easy in terms of what you typically look at for federal prosecutions. I mean, typically if you're going to bring a federal case, it's not going to be four months jail because you, that's not how you want federal cases being brought. If they're that minor, you just don't bother with them. But that is what has happened. I mean, there's another instance of a, of a Yale, just to give you an example here, Yale soccer coach, uh, who uh, took bribes of $800,000 in one case to put somebody on the soccer team, get him into Yale. The details of this are, are, are what they are, and you can look more into them if you like. But the, the real important part of this is two points. A, I think it was a, an, an unbelievable waste of government resources to spend time on this. But B, and maybe most importantly... This is the reality of these elite institutions, quote unquote, elite institutions. As I look at the college question, and I I did not uh, go to college in any material way. uh, there, There are probably right now 40 colleges in the country that on name alone have any level of brand, have any kind of brand power, make any difference. So if you want to be a nurse, you got to go to nursing school, fine. If you want to be an electrical engineer and you have to learn electrical engineering or civil engineer, you want to do civil engineering or uh, this, that, or the other, okay. We can have a longer discussion about this whole undergrad scam. Why aren't people just going to law school to start off with? Why aren't they just going to medical school? Probably because most people coming out of the, the, the K-12 system don't know how to read and write anymore. That's a big reason why. Used to just be a scam, but now they truly, uh, somebody graduating high school these days rarely has any clue how to read and write. I mean, at a, I mean at a high level, a high level, uh, they don't. So maybe that's why, but it still shouldn't take four years. I mean, do a boot camp, do a summer boot camp or something, but if they're truly smart enough. Now there's probably 40 in the country that have the brand power, though, to outside of vocational situations, let's say you just have an English degree from X university, probably 40 schools. I don't need to list them for you. My opinion's not what's important. You look into it. You make your own mind up. But that's what I would say. Now, if you have an English degree from you know, Cal State Long Beach, it doesn't have any brand power, I'm afraid. You might be a great person. You might be very bright. You're going to do fine if you're that great. But I'm telling you, just being from that school does not have the power of Stanford, Harvard, MIT, and on down the list, all the way down to, you know, Drexel and Wake Forest and you name it. And, and, I'm, and I'm leaving a bunch out. So these, these schools have true brand power. Simply graduating from Stanford will get you 30, 40 job offers. I've, I have friends and who, who have done this. These are entry-level jobs, okay, given, but they will get you 30, 40 job offers. After that, it's up to you to show you can perform and all the rest. And so among rich people, and especially among celebrities apparently, but among rich people, it is a status symbol to say Johnny's going to Duke. Sarah's going to Yale. It is because it's a way of them signaling, oh, look at how smart my gene, my genes are. Look, I mean, basically, that's what it comes down to. 
and how diligent my parenting is, whether it is or isn't. And within that world, there's all kinds of corruption that exists. I mean, look at that Caroline Ellison, okay? Look at that woman. Now, of course, she's pleaded guilty to seven counts of wire fraud and other charges, securities fraud. But you, you look at that woman speak about financial markets. She's a giggling buffoon. And that's an MIT mathematics graduate? That's an MIT mathematics graduate? Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? And it doesn't mean there's no really smart mathematics graduates from MIT. There are. But but what explains that one? How does she get through the filter? Because you know there were some really smart ones that didn't make it, had to go to their second choice in school or their third choice. Well, then you dig in and you find out, oh, her father's a professor there in economics and he's a very influential professor and he's the head of the MIT Media Lab uh, for a number of years. And okay, okay, now, yeah, duh, that explains it. Everybody stops there. So there are these games that are played, whether it's simple nepotism, whether it's out and out bribes, whether it's influence peddling, whether it's whining and dining. And the system that exists has a general undercurrent of meritocracy. Otherwise, it would have no credibility for which would be worth bribing to take advantage of, obviously. But on the edges, and these are increasingly large edges, and the core becomes smaller and smaller and smaller every year, you have all of this bribery and graft and nepotism and insider baseball. And, and, and it's... And it's so prevalent. I mean, Donald Trump's daughter, Tiffany Trump. So she's a nice gal, never met her. She gets into Harvard Law School. Okay. I'm sure she's very bright, but what are the odds? Let's just let's just ask ourselves, what are the odds that Tiffany Trump just so happens to be one of the top, however many couple of hundred law school candidates in the entire country on merit alone. What would you say to that? He, and he was president when she got in, by the way. He was president. I don't know if she's. I don't know if she's still there. She dropped out. I think she got married recently. I don't know. What What are the odds, really? So you you can ask these questions and. It just becomes clearer and clearer that you, you when you when you see somebody that has an MIT thing on their diploma, now you have to ask the question: Are 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 they really an MIT math graduate who knows what they're doing, or are they Caroline Ellison? Are they really a Harvard law graduate, or are they Tiffany Trump, or some other situation like that? And you never really exactly know until you start talking to these people, and then you know very quickly when you speak to them. You say, "What? Something doesn't add up here. It doesn't add up at all." So, you know, I don't know, guys. I, I have no regrets. I, um, I I guess maybe in another universe, in another life, I, I would have, um, you know, parents who would pay bribes and and I would, you know, things would work out differently and I would go to elite colleges. And But I don't, I don't I'm, I'm glad the way it's worked out. I graduated high school early and I got right to the real world and 
here I am at 25 and I'm wildly successful beyond beyond any any of my expectations and and wildest goals. So, you know, I'm I'm very pleased with the way things have worked out for me, but the but you do have to keep all of this in mind with the way the system actually works and the way people trade on this stuff. Um, why would the presidency of Trump not work against her? Because at a certain name ID level, at a certain name ID level, it, it doesn't work against her. Believe it or not. Um, it really doesn't. So we we have traditionally been a country that does very well on this. We've been the best on the issue of, of preventing nepotism and having a true meritocracy. We really have. Um, so we, we really, really have. And, um, you know, we're far better than the UK. We're far better than France. We're far better than the Middle East, certainly on this issue. But it's getting worse and worse. It's creeping in more and more. We have more and more of an entrenched aristocracy in this country. And, um, you know, there's opportunity in that. There's downsides in that. Okay, guys, my voice here is not going to hold up much longer at all. Thanks for watching. I'll take more of your questions on the next show. Of course, you can send them in to slash contact. You can support the show financially, and, and I truly, really do support it. Or, or, or I truly do really appreciate it. I'm sorry, my brain's going here. Cold medicine. Uh, you can do that either jacobwold.org slash podcast, or you can go cash app, real jacobwold, cash app, real jacobwold. I appreciate it, everyone. Thanks for watching. And I will see you uh, on Thursday, should be 2 p.m. Eastern time here live on YouTube and podcast apps everywhere shortly thereafter. Thanks so much for watching, and I'll see you next time.